This recording is brought to you by Whitworth University. To hear additional programs, please visit www.whitworth.edu backslash podcast. Thank you very much. Um, don't mind me here. I'm just going to, I've planted a very small explosive device in my phone. Don't worry, it won't hurt any of you. It'll just knock me out after 45 minutes, which you will thank me for. Um, I'm very happy to be with you. I'm very grateful to Professor Carraway and to all the other good folks who have made it possible for me to be here. Um, let's go to the next slide. Um, so I want to talk about beauty tonight. Oh, and look, there's a book on the subject. Um, actually, my latest book is, is, in fact, not Beauty Will Save the World. It's, this is my longer pieces, but I've, I've collected my image editorials in two books. The first is called Intruding Upon the Timeless, and then the second volume has just come out called The Operation of Grace. Um, <clears throat> but this is a book that's all my non, bigger non-image essays, so thank you for having an interest in it and in and, and, and me. So I want to talk about beauty tonight. <coughs> it may seem a little lame to talk about beauty or defend beauty or argue for beauty, but I think we have a cultural tradition, particularly for those of us who do live in a world, a religious world, a world of Christian culture and tradition in the United States, that does in fact have a rather conflicted attitude towards this subject. So I hope that it is a little interesting. It may get abstract at times. The slides will, I hope, help make things more concrete and ground them in very palpable things that you can immediately see and relate to. Um, so let me just say a couple quick qualifications before I get started because the discussion of beauty will often involve people objecting or raising their hand about these two things. First, today I'm going to talk primarily because of my own expertise, my own knowledge base. I'm going to talk about beauty in art, not beauty in nature. Just to understand that you can find beauty in both. I happen to be drawn toward the beauty of of our art, partly because I grew up in New York City and there wasn't a lot of na nature there besides Central Park. Um, but also just because it's where my mind is, is constantly drawn. The other aspect of beauty that I'm not going to go into in detail is the age-old debate about beauty being in the eye of the beholder. If we can advance to the next slide. Beauty cannot be reduced to taste, I would argue. There is an element, a space of subjectivity but it happens that I don't really like olives, but I would be a fool if I were to deny that olives are among the most beautiful foodstuffs known to humankind. So I don't really want to derail the argument by what I would consider a fairly cheap attempt to reduce beauty to pure subjectivity. The reality is that in human history, there are clusterings of human agreement about the beauty of a variety of things, which does point to a commonality, the possibility of shared judgment of something perhaps not purely subjective in the matter. But I just get those two things out of the way. By the way, I, some people, when they don't like a food, they're like, 
ew, that stinks. Like, I don't, I'm like, I'm really sad that I don't like a fruit. I'm like embarrassed. Like, I hate that I hate olives. How cool would it be to love olives? Olives are great. Olives are civilized. They're one of the great things. I'm embarrassed. I hate, I hate that I hate olives. I'm not proud of it. Um, so, it's true that some people have occasionally inexplicable ideas about one, what constitutes beauty. Next. Um, it's also true that beauty can, in fact, be culturally conditioned. Next. There are differing cultural attitudes towards what constitutes beauty. This is a relatively recent version, but only a few centuries ago we had next. A somewhat different idea of what beauty looks like. I grant that. But it, neither of these objections, the subjectivity or the cultural conditioning of beauty, reduces the subject out of hand. Tonight, what I want to argue is really to invoke the great transcendentals, what the philosophers call the great transcendentals, beauty, truth, and goodness. I want to say that beauty is not greater than truth or goodness because they must be, by definition, equal in dignity and value, in a sense, a kind of Trinitarian balance. However, what I want to argue about is that in practice, in Western history, both on the Greek philosophical side with Plato and then in the theological side from the Israelites down to Christian history, beauty in practice is treated as the more problematic of the three and often demoted like Cinderella to a lesser place. Next. So in short, I am... I am arguing for a restoration of balance. Now, I know that these terms are abstract. But I do believe that our attitudes towards them have strong practical consequences for how we think and act in the world. And I believe that the distrust and alienation from beauty that have been at the root of some of the worst aspects of our cultural tradition have spawned dangerous pathologies that harm us in a very palpable way in the modern world. Strange as it may seem, beauty still needs to be defended. In the history of the West, beauty has been the Cinderella to the big sisters next, goodness and truth. <laughs> now, I don't mean to say that goodness and truth are bad. I'm, not, I'm just trying to be silly here. A little bit of joking around. But I do want to say that they have been sort of the meat and potatoes, the bread and the butter of the Western tradition. They're the terms that we have felt are unassailable. How could you say anything against truth and goodness? They're the solid citizens. Beauty, on the other hand, beauty is a little harder to pin down. Beauty is the one of the three that feels a little seductive a little uncertain. Beauty might draw you in at one end of a continuum and then dump you out. You not know not where. There is an uncertainty to beauty and, of course, a tremendous suspicion because beauty is deeply connected with something known as pleasure. And we know that we can't have too much pleasure. That's bad. 
That's really bad. You know what H.L. Mencken's definition of a Puritan was? The haunting fear that someone somewhere might be having fun. Okay, gosh, you're a hard crowd tonight. <laughs> Gee whiz. I usually score with that one. But you're all probably pro pre Puritan. How is he why is he damning the Puritans? I don't mean to say that all of us would instinctually say beauty is a great thing. We, we do love it, and we have defended it and lionized it throughout history. The problem comes when we start getting official, when we start having to get theological, for example, for the, those of us in a, in a religious sphere of life. Then we get a little more hesitant. We get a little more, mis we get more misgivings about how beauty can be defined and defended. In some ways, the ambivalence about beauty begins at the very beginning of Western culture. In Jerusalem, next, we have simultaneously commandments. On the one hand, we have commandments against idols and graven images. And yet, coexisting along with that, we have hymns of praise to the craftsmanship of the creator, artist, God, not to mention extensive instructions for how to create the Ark of the Covenant in a fashion that is ravishingly beautiful. Next, in the, in the same way in the Greek world, Plato can say that beauty is that which brings us close to the divine that the divine madness of the poet is a kind of epiphany, a sort of almost a possession um, that takes us out of ourselves and brings us close to the divine world. And yet at the same time, Plato feels the need to boot poets out of the ideal republic. Because why? For the same reason that they're untrustworthy that you don't know where this is going to lead. But these transcendentals, they came out of this classical world of philosophy. Truth, goodness, and beauty. Why do we call them transcendental? Because they are the, they are the traits of God. They are the attributes that God has, the transcendent God in infinite measure. As one scholar put, puts it, Truth, they're all about being, the being of God, God's infinite being. So one scholar puts it, truth is being as knowable. Goodness is being as lovable. And beauty as being is being as admirable, attractive, desirable. Truth is knowing the world. Goodness is loving Beauty is attraction, desire, admiration. These are the three transcendentals. But beauty has come under attack. Next. Throughout history, the iconoclastic temptation, the attempt to destroy the beautiful as being an idol, as being a distraction from what is considered true and good, 
has, has been an ongoing battle. Think of the song of the sirens in the Odyssey, Homer's Odyssey. Odysseus has to be tied to the mast of his ship when he passes by the, the sirens because their song is so beautiful that he would go to them and not ever leave their side. Next. <coughs> there we have it. So here's the irony. There isn't much difference on the one hand between a stern religious iconoclast who says, whether in the 9th century or the 17th century, that smashing statues of saints are good and valuable way to be holy, and a modern Marxist who attacks beauty as nothing but a drug to lull us into enslavement to the powers that be. Both attacks, the religious and the secular, are based in part on what Wendy Steiner has called the scandal of pleasure. Beauty has an undeniable, pleasurable element, and that always scares us. But as I will point out in a moment, pleasure is actually one of the signs that beauty is something good. So I say that the time has come to bring beauty back, to give it the glass slipper and invite it to the prom. Next. The thinker who's helped me the most along these lines is a 20th century theologian. You have to have a PhD just to pronounce his name, which I don't, but I'm going to try anyway. His name is Hans Urs von Balthasar. Isn't that a great name? I'm going to name one of my kids that. Hans Urs von Balthasar. Hans Urs von Balthasar. I'll just call him von B for short. Okay, whatever. Von Balthasar, who was at the very end of his life made a cardinal, very influential on people like Ratzinger, who became Benedict XVI, one of the great thinkers of 20th century theology. He made a rather interesting and bold argument that really launched a whole new school of theology called theological aesthetics, the study of beauty in art, in theology. Well, Balthazar says that when we discuss the true, the good, and the beautiful, the problem is we are sinful fallen beings. And so when we, argue, when we talk about these things, we're always arguing about them. We always have different definitions of truth, different definitions of the good. What is the correct morality? So when we're debating these things, we're always fighting. We always bring an agenda. We're always interested. We always have a, an axe to grind. Except in the case of beauty, where beauty has the capacity to sail underneath like a stealth bomber, underneath the radar of all our interested arguments, all of our agendas and manifestos and, and ideas. It can sail in under the radar and get right to the heart and to pierce us. And von Balthasar argues, not that this makes beauty better, but he says it has some advantages in this fallen world. But he says it has the capacity to deliver that ray of the divine, of the beatific vision itself of, of, the, God, of the Godhood into our lives. And that, that makes it something that is an important clue 
to how to live our lives and what we should surround ourselves with. Next. Well, Balthazar's great theological work has an overall title called The Glory of the Lord. And by the glory of the Lord, I forgot I've got my little thing on so I can wander a little bit. I'll smack you doing that when I'm judged now. <laughs> um, well, Balthazar says, um, you wrote this series of books, and they're, they're a trilogy of, they're all multi-volume sets. And believe me, I've only scampered around the foothills of these. I've read like the summaries that other people have read of these books. But it's interesting enough to me that I've, want to quote it. So the, the trilogy of books are based on the transcendentals. Their, the overarching title is called The Glory of the Lord. The first set of volumes is Theological Aesthetics. He starts with beauty. And his first volume is called Seeing the Form. Seeing the Form. Our, our encounter with God, he says, happens as a kind of perception of a presence that rocks our world. It's an act of aesthesis, an act of perception. That then propels us into a life that involves drama or the good because when we encounter this presence, it changes the way we behave or want to relate to each other and to the world. So we start with beauty Goodness is about how to relate to this presence that we encounter. And so beauty is perception, is the visual. Good is dramatic. It's like theater. And only then does he finish his trilogy with the true logic. Theo theologic are the last volumes. But his argument is beauty comes first. And if we try to start with logic first, we live a life of abstraction. We reduce everything to concepts and ideas. And we lose that palpable excitement, that encounter with real presence, the desirable beauty of being. And here's how he puts it. He puts it in a very powerful way. And this is one of these, just as his name is hard to pronounce, so some of these concepts here are pretty dense. So, And believe me, I feel them as dense too. But again, I like them, and I don't understand most of it, but I understand enough to say this is cool. So here it is. This is words from the very first volume of the first sequence of volumes on beauty in this guy's magnum opus. Okay? He says, beauty is the word which shall be our first. Beauty is the last thing which the thinking intellect dares to approach, since only it dances in an uncontained, as an uncontained splendor around the double constellation of the true and the good and their inseparable relation to one another. Beauty is the disinterested one. That is, it doesn't have the agenda, right? The disinterested word, a word which both imperceptibly and unmistakably has bid farewell to our new world, a world of interests, leaving it to its own avarice and sadness. So he's making a case that we live in an era of utility and pragmatism that has said goodbye to beauty. 
no longer loved or fostered by religion. There's that suspicion again, right? No longer loved or fostered by religion. Beauty is lifted from its face as a mask, as nothing but a surface. And its absence exposes features on that face which threaten to become incomprehensible to man. We no longer dare to believe in beauty, and we make of it a mere appearance in order the more easily to dispose of it. Our situation today shows that beauty demands for itself at least as much courage and decision as do truth and goodness. We can be sure that whoever sneers at her name as if she were the ornament of a bourgeois past, whether he admits it or not, can no longer pray and soon will no longer be able to love. Whoa. I love, and that quote gives me chills. Beauty requiring courage? I think it does. I really do. Well, Balthazar's argument is that beauty is a way of knowing the world that is different from the path of truth or the path of goodness. The problem is that we have tried to make beauty subservient to goodness or to truth. Beauty becomes the packaging around the bitter pill of truth. It makes it go down more easily. But the minute you say that one transcendental has to serve the other, it's no longer equal. It is subservient. It becomes servile, a slave to the other. So you have to ask yourself, is each of these things a pathway towards being, towards God, towards the ultimate? Is each one a pathway? And if so, what is unique to each pathway? You can make the very same argument about Faith and reason, right? Faith and reason. We talk about faith and reason all the time in the Western tradition. Faith and reason, meat and potatoes, right? Faith and reason. Why not imagination? Why doesn't anyone ever throw imagination in there? It seems like a terrible loss to me. If we talk about truth, goodness, and beauty, why don't we talk about faith, reason, and imagination? It seems to me that imagination is precisely that which will save faith and reason from becoming too abstract from becoming too legalistic and dry as dust. Imagination gives flesh and bones through art to these big abstractions. Next. Well, that's the quote I just read. <laughs> Next. This is another scene from the Odyssey. Earlier we saw Odysseus strap himself to the mast to avoid being tempted by the siren song, and yet, again, to show you the ambivalence that's so deep in our tradition, one of the other most powerful scenes of the Odyssey is where Odysseus washes up on the beach and encounters Nausicaa, this beautiful virgin playing with her friends, gallivanting on the beach. And here we have this image of scantily clad guy with a few little leaves there, kind of a brute, a beast, coming off the beach like a sea monster 
seeing this, this vision of grace and beauty and truth. Of course, her, her girlfriends are all running going, oh my God, he's so gross and he's almost naked. But she has the capacity to stand and to receive him, receive him graciously. And one of the most powerful things about this is that Odysseus has a wife. He's the whole point of the poem is he's going back to her. He's, he's, he sees the beauty of this woman, but he's, it's not lust. It's not lust that drives him. It's the sheer beauty of her form, the radiance of her innocence, her self-containment, her inner poise and peace. And so just as we have this divided mentality is beauty, the Israelites say no graven images, but then they say here's how to make the ark. So we have Homer saying tie yourself to the mast, but then be drawn to the beauty that moves your heart. It shows you how deeply divided we are. Next. To be struck by beauty is to be wounded at times, to feel an almost palpable pain, a sense of being pierced. Jacques Maritain, one of the much easier name to pronounce. Jacques Maritain, a French philosopher of the 20th century, another brilliant thinker about the relationship between faith and art, said, the beautiful is essentially delightful. This is why of its very nature and precisely as beautiful, it stirs desire and produces love. Whereas the true as such only illumines. It is for beauty that wisdom is love. Love in its turn produces ecstasy. That is to say, it puts the lover outside of himself. Ecstasy of which the soul experiences a diminished form when it is seized by the beauty of the work of art and the fullness when it is absorbed like the dew by the beauty of God. The beautiful is delightful. It stirs desire and produces love. So if we listen to von Balthasar and to Maritain, we see that beauty is not just a surface. It is not just a sugar coating. It is not just a mask. Beauty can be a way of knowing, a way that is both a knowing and an emotional movement of the heart. Not just decorating what we know through other means, but bringing us towards meaning in its own right. When we treat beauty as Cinderella, we are saying to it, go make pretty pictures, but don't start acting like you're a pathway to knowing the world. Beauty is its own way of knowing. It's easy to see when we talk about truth. We say, and we talk about goodness. We, when we act justly, we come to know more about reality and about justice. But so it is with beauty. Beauty allows us to penetrate reality through the imagination. Beauty elicits, elicits this wound, this shock. We draw a breath in like Odysseus encountering Nausicaa. Because beauty surprises us. Beauty takes us off guard. And it opens us up. Ezra Pound once said that the artist's task is to make it new. What is it? it? Well, the it is the truth of the world. The it, the it is the eternal verities 
what Ecclesiastes said. There's nothing new under the sun, but nonetheless, the nothing new under the sun has to be made new or we lose it. We lose the connection to it. A work of art doesn't invent the truth, but it makes it accessible to us and lovable in a way that truth itself can't do. Art fails when it merely tells us what we already know in the ways that we already know it. Now, believe it or not, we're past the halfway mark. So now I want to do a little bit of maybe getting a slightly less abstract, thank you for your patience, and talk about the relationship between beauty and truth and beauty and goodness specifically. How do they connect to one another? Next. The relationship between, oh, there's the maritime point. There we go. Thank you. The relationship between beauty and truth helps us understand that beauty is not mere prettiness. This is one of the big blocks that we ha come up against with. When we talk about beauty, we think, well, beauty just means the sweet, the lovely, and we know that a lot of the world isn't lovely. And this goes to another deep divide in Western history. The Greeks had two minds. On the one hand, they loved the ideal. They loved the ideal, the perfect form. As in the Venus de Milo, they loved harmony, proportion, symmetry. On the other hand, next, and this is our later Western appropriation of it, next. The same time the Greeks knew tragedy and the brokenness of the world, as in Oedipus, and next, as in later appropriations a la King Lear of further extensions of the tradition of tragedy. So how do these things connect to each other? How is beauty not mere prettiness? How can beauty reflect the brokenness of the world and still be beauty? I would argue that beauty lives in a tension between the real and the ideal, the grandeur of creation and the fallenness of humankind. To me, that is why art is always never far from the prophetic dimension where it connects to truth. That prophetic shock, that challenge to complacency that tragedy reminds us of is a reconfiguration of our understanding of the way things are, an awareness of our brokenness and contingency. The idea that brokenness is not beautiful is something that comes from that Greek tradition of the ideal, but which Christianity refuses to have any part of. Next. Christianity, I think, comes to the rescue of beauty and helps us to understand it is not mere prettiness. Pope Benedict has written beautifully about this. For Christianity resolves the tension that's so powerful in the Greek tradition. On the one hand, the ideal. On the other hand, the tragic that never seemed to meet. In Christianity, these things come together with Christ. And particularly, they come together at the cross. The cross, the instrument of torture and shame, was taken up into a higher vision of beauty. Brokenness and woundedness 
the shattering of the ideal, next, become one, fused in a single whole. In the cross, beauty is anything but sentimental. In fact, it's closer to what the poet Yeats meant by his phrase, a terrible beauty. That's one reason why even, the res in the, even with our celebration of the resurrection, Christians should never forget that Christ's body retains the marks of the wounds that he received on the cross. He goes amongst the apostles post-resurrection with all of those marks still on him. Have you ever thought about that? I mean, he's God, right? Couldn't he just have gone, they would disappear, right? I mean, if he can rise from the dead, he can get rid of a scar, right? Why doesn't he? Why doesn't he? Just to prove a point? So Thomas figures it out? Well, that maybe has something to do with it. But maybe there's something even deeper. Maybe proving the point is not so much just proving, yes, I, I'm the same guy who died on that cross. But yes, reality is comic and tragic, happy and sad. It's, to, it's, it's one and the same, and it meets together in the cross. So Benedict, Pope Benedict, Cardinal Ratzinger, who I, former Cardinal Ratzinger, who I just had you, gave you a slide of, shows us in a beautiful passage how these things come together. He says, in Christ's passion, Greek aesthetic, so worthy of admiration because of its perceived contact with the divine. That's Plato, right? Divine madness of the Pope. Greek aesthetic, so worthy of admiration because of its perceived contact with the divine, which yet remains ineffable, unreachable for it, is not removed, but overcome. The experience of beauty has been given a new depth, new realism. Key who is beauty itself, let himself be struck in the face, spat upon, crowned with thorns. But precisely in this face, disfigured in this way, the authentic ultimate beauty appears. The beauty of love that goes all the way to the end. And that, just because of this, reveals itself to be stronger than falsehood and violence. Whoever has perceived this beauty knows that precisely truth not falsehood, is the world's ultimate need. It is not falsehood that is true, but truth. It is, so to speak, a new trick on the part of falsehood to present itself as truth and to say to us, beyond me, after all, there is nothing. Stop looking for truth or even loving it, because going on like this, you are on the wrong road. The icon of Christ crucified frees us from this deception that is so widespread today. Nonetheless, it posits as a condition that we let ourselves be wounded along with him and that we believe in love, which can risk setting outer beauty aside in order to proclaim precisely in this way beauty's truth. Now again, we know that's a heavy quote. There's a lot there, more than we can grasp in the midst of a lecture. But I hope that even tidbits of it are interesting to you and valuable. What I would say is, and this is one reason why I defend tragedy, particularly around religious audiences, because I think a lot of people of faith assume Christianity is comic because we start 
innocent, then we fall, and then we're redeemed. So that's the comic circle, right? The lovers are happy, then, there's, then they fall in love with the wrong people, and they get lost in the woods, and all kinds of weirdness happens. And then they figure it all out, and they get married to the right people, and it's all happily ever over after. And we think that Christianity is comic in the simple sense. But I would argue that Christianity, like the cross, is bifurcated where comedy and tragedy meet in that centerpiece of the cross because the cross is always there. The fact of the wounds are always there. There is a kind of brokenness to our experience that will not be fully healed this side of heaven. I think one of the reasons that people walk away from Christianity is Christians' inability to understand tragedy, inability to understand suffering. We have to make everything shiny happy. But the greatest artists of our tradition can show us that even when the ideal is broken, that brokenness, light shines out. Even out of a wound, light shines out. To me, this is why we can wear crosses around our necks, have crosses in churches, and worship under instruments of torture like this, precisely because beauty has comprehended something more powerful. So yes, truth is an essential element that beauty helps us to love. But think about it. Truth without beauty, what is that? give us. Truth without beauty is abstraction. It's fleshless. It's just a set of propositions, bullet points, dry as dust. Beauty gives us incarnation, flesh, blood, the muck and the muddle of human life. It takes the abstract and makes it concrete. Truth without beauty becomes next propaganda. Beauty helps us to understand our fragility and limitations, including the limitations of reason itself. We try to understand truth, but if we try to pursue truth and reason alone, we end up in error. Beauty helps us to understand that we cannot understand everything. Beauty helps us to understand that mystery is part of our understanding of our place in the world. Mystery is this zone where we understand in part through a glass darkly. And this is what leads us to beauty and goodness next. Next. Beauty can help us to value the good. Especially the good of ordinary things. Beauty has a way of returning us to reality, returning us to the everyday, the everyday that has bored us for so long. But how many of the great works, even epics, have tried to remind us that the thing that we're bored with when we pick up the, the work of art is the thing that we should cherish most of all? Odysseus goes all around the Mediterranean in order to get back to his wife, to his marriage bed. This is what art does. It restores us to the goodness of the world. Beauty has a way, as we've heard earlier, of leading us towards ecstasy. And you know what the literal Greek definition of ecstasy is? Standing outside of yourself, being outside of yourself. You want a fancier way of putting it? Beauty decenters us. Beauty decenters us. 
we literally fall into that which we have perceived. We kind of lose ourselves in it. We become one with it. And this is important because in the relationship between beauty and goodness, people have argued that beauty is a distraction from goodness. Beauty is this luxurious, like, siren song. And if we're too immersed in beauty, we will neglect, we will be with the lotus eaters, we'll neglect justice, the poor, the needy. One of the most powerful rebuttals to that that's ever been made has been made by a Harvard atheist professor named Elaine Scarry. I really highly recommend her book. It's got a little bit of jargon into it. She's a Harvard professor, so she has to do it. Otherwise, she won't get you know, a pay raise every year. But it's only 100 pages, and it's mostly quite readable. It's called On Beauty and Being Just. And what she says in that book is, beauty makes us care for the world. Beauty makes us love the world. Beauty makes us aware of the fragility of the world. What do we do when we see something beautiful? We want to take a photograph of it. We want to sketch it. We want to replicate it. Beauty generates beauty. Beauty generates life. And that life is fragile. It's evanescent. It's fleeting. It's often gone. And so she argues that beauty is decentering of the ego. She writes, radical decentering. She says, a beautiful thing is not the only thing in the world that can make us feel adjacent or next to, say, the poor, the broken, the vulnerable. Beauty is not the only thing in the world that can make us feel adjacent, nor is it the only thing in the world that brings a, a state of acute pleasure. But it appears to be one of the few phenomena in the world that brings about both simultaneously. Adjacency art takes me out of myself into your, the experience of what's being depicted, the world in the work of art. And it gives me pleasure while I'm feeling compassion towards what I'm encountering. So beauty tutors our compassion. It makes us more prone to love and see the attraction of goodness. It takes us out of our self-referentiality. Next. Oh, yeah. These, these, are, these are just a couple examples where I want to show you how beauty and art can affect the way that we encounter goodness. So the last, go back one. So the last, these, these are a couple what you would call Dutch genre paintings. And they are typically allegorical. So they're kind of showing you people who are more or less behaving badly. Like people behaving badly. That could be the sitcom here, right? What can you see? Well, there's a woman who's got her guy's leg over her leg. It's a little lascivious, and he looks a bit wasted. And there's a woman who's fallen asleep because she's drunk so much, and the dog's eating the food, and that shouldn't happen. And the kid's spilling. Bad stuff's happening because people are not behaving well. Okay? Next. Same thing. You see the woman here who's fallen asleep, and their kids are going to, you know, rack and ruin. This woman's sneaking up and going to steal her bird or something. I don't know. It's bad. Next. Then suddenly, Johannes Vermeer comes into this world. And he paints these paintings that technically are 
are related to those genre paintings, and there's a whole different way of looking at things. Now you have another woman who's asleep, but she's not depicted in such an obvious moralistic way, like, oh, that big slobbery woman who's, you know, really a jerk. Now we get a woman of some dignity, some beauty, some attractiveness. And there's not a ton of obvious symbolism going on. All the other characters have been taken away. Things have been reduced in simplicity. There's a kind of beauty to the minimalism of the composition, right? And there's a much greater realism. There's a much greater sense of, of human personality behind that. Now, if you want to, you can think about things like, what does the open door symbolize? Has she come in? Has she, is she, does she go in or go out? Is that a decision she has to make? We don't know. Suddenly, we're thinking in moral terms. Has she drunk too much? Is she sad? Is she missing somebody? But the beauty of the artist, the sense of reverence for mystery that the artist has brought to the genre tradition suddenly puts it onto a completely new level. Next. Woman delivering a letter. What is it? Is it a letter from her husband or from someone else? Is it maybe from a lover? We don't know. She wears these gaudy colors of yellow and white polka dots or black polka dots there. Suddenly, there's enough ambiguity, but at the same time, enough capacity for us to empathize with real human characters so that we become adjacent to the characters in the painting in a way that we could never do with the obvious morality tales of those earlier genre paintings where it's obvious that that's them, not us. This is a very different way of looking at it. This is what happens when beauty shapes our attitude towards the moral questions that lie at the heart of what goodness is. So, goodness, if truth without beauty is dead abstractions and legalism, then goodness without beauty is moralism, holier than thou. where we are above those whom we criticize. We are no longer adjacent or united to. But beauty can bring us close to others and to our own fallenness and contingency. So, to wrap up, thank the Lord, let me say, because I know some of you were thinking about it, doesn't Beauty need help? Yes. Of course it does. If, I'm, if my argument is we need real balance, if we need these things to be truly equal and not demoting beauty, beauty itself needs help too. So yes, beauty without goodness is frigid and lifeless. Beauty without goodness is frigid and lifeless. Beauty without goodness can be virtuosity. The artist spinning plates and flaming chainsaws. But without goodness, without love for the other, it's just showing off. We admire the acrobatics, but we fail to see the point. 
beauty without truth? Well, it's a lie. Beauty without truth is the mask, is reducing beauty to a mask that goes on top of the world rather than revealing the world to us. Beauty needs truth just as beauty needs goodness. Next. That's another great Vermeer, which I would love to talk about, but there's no time next. But so what I want to end with is this great work called The Ecstasy of St. Teresa by Bernini in a small church in Rome. Some of you may have seen it. It looks so monumental, it's hard to believe how tiny that chapel is when you actually go to see it. Bernini's sculpture depicts the moment depicted in St. Teresa of Avila's own writings in which she was pierced by the arrow of God's love. The language that Teresa uses, like her fellow mystic of Spanish mystic, John of the Cross, is erotic. It is the language of eros, which is the language of pleasure as well as of love. Next. This depiction shows the saint in a swoon of ecstasy. And yes, I hate to tell you this, but all the sexual metaphors are there. This is one of the great masterpieces of Western art, but it's kind of embarrassing to talk about. Next. For her, this comes from this ancient tradition that goes back to the Song of Songs in Scripture, in which the erotic is a metaphor of God's love for us, God's desire for us, and hopefully stirring our desire for him too. Beauty stirs this desire. Beauty moves the heart. Beauty moves us in a way that pure goodness and pure truth cannot. Next. It takes us outside of ourselves. It opens us up. It pierces us. And it lets us then to be free to dance in uncontained splendor around the double constellation of the true and the good. Thank you very much.